toward the goal. Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God, and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Amen. Let's pray.
Dear Lord, uh, we ask as we read these words, as we think about these words, that you would show us Christ and that you would open our hearts to receive him uh, and to pursue him with all our might. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, there are a few people, I think, in the world more focused than professional athletes. Uh, They have this goal that they want to get to, this uh, trophy that they want to win, competition that they want to win, whatever it is, uh, and they set their minds and their hearts on it and they go for it, uh, and they go for it with everything that they have. They push themselves to the limit. Uh, I'm always amazed by the the AFL uh, players. They finish in the beginning of October and they're already training again by the end of November, the beginning of December. They train, uh, people train from early morning, hour after hour. The swimmers, they get up ridiculous hours and they just swim lap after lap after lap after lap. I saw an interview a while ago with a cyclist, professional cyclist, who was saying that during the Tour de France on the off days, they still cycle for like 40 kilometres. So they don't have a race, right? But they still get on the bike and, and ride slowly, slowly, for 40 kilometres. It's madness. Anything that stands in the way of them reaching their goal has to go. Other hobbies go. Their free time goes. Sometimes friends get sacrificed and family gets sacrificed on the altar of their kind of achievement. I'll never forget the seriousness with which some people approached their footy when I was part of a club in Geelong. Uh, They were handing out dietary advice. And if you've ever seen me kick a football, dietary advice was not the problem. (laughs) But we were in the seconds, the reserves of the lowest competition in Geelong, and people were thinking about what they could eat to make themselves better players. The desire to win and to succeed is all-consuming. And here in this chapter of Philippians, God says that our pursuit of Christ should be like that. Like an athlete pursues the goal uh, of of winning, of of conquering, uh, our Christian lives should be a race and athletic pursuit. Uh, Paul likens the Christian life to the pursuit of an athlete. He says in verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Like an athlete pursues the victory, God calls us to pursue Christ. We looked a couple of weeks ago about how our partnership in the gospel with other Christians should shape our lives. Last week, we asked what a life worthy of the gospel looks like. This week, we're thinking about how to run the race of the Christian life. Well, to begin, the most important thing in running the race of the Christian life is to make sure that you're running in the right race and in the right direction. Paul begins with a command to rejoice. Rejoice in all that God has done for us, he says. But then he quickly warns the Philippians as well to be on the lookout. To be on the lookout for people who can destroy their joy 
by encouraging them to focus on the wrong things. Verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. It might seem strange to us that Paul is engaged in a debate uh, over who are the true circumcision. But within the framework of the Old Testament, it makes sense. Circumcision was a sign that God had given to his people. Every male child was to be circumcised on the eighth day as a reminder of God's promise to Abraham. It was a reminder of God's promise that through a descendant, through one descendant of Abraham, God would fix the world. God would put the world right. That's why the sign was circumcision, because it was about a descendant. But that promised descendant has now come, Paul says. Jesus is the promised one. And Paul is saying the key thing is to know him, to to pursue him. It's not those who are circumcised, says Paul, who know God and who can have confidence before God, but those who know Jesus and through Jesus have received the Holy Spirit. Now that Jesus has come, And the Spirit has come through him to continue in circumcision in the hope that it will make God favourable towards us is, Paul says, at best mutilation. It's like being given a tourist brochure for France and then instead of spending your whole life trying to actually get to France, you spend your whole life collecting more tourist brochures. And then when someone gives you a free ticket to get there, you just tear it up and throw it in the bin and keep collecting more and more brochures. Paul says the promised descendant of Abraham has actually now come. And so to keep focusing on the sign, to keep collecting the tourist brochures, is to miss the Messiah. It's to miss the promise. It's to miss the hope of salvation. Paul goes on to list some other reasons that people might think would give him confidence before God, but that don't. He says in verse 4, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of, uh, on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul had a lot going for him. He was was himself a descendant of Israel, the nation to which God had made all these promises and said, yes, I'm going to work through you to to rescue the world. Paul had come from that nation. He was diligent in seeking to obey God. He was really striving as hard as he could to do the right thing. And when, people, when other people weren't obeying God, when other people were disregarding the law, he was striving as hard as he could to make them see the light. And yet despite all that, Paul says, he considers those privileges, those achievements as nothing. Verse 7, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, 
that I might gain Christ. None of those things matter anymore. They don't matter. In fact, it's not just that they're a matter of indifference, but they actually are damaging to Paul's spiritual life because they draw him away from Jesus. Paul had been single-minded and focused, but he'd been single-minded and focused on the wrong thing. He'd been single-minded and focused on his own achievements, his own efforts, his own privileges, when he should have been single-minded and focused on Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what other achievements or privileges you or I have. What matters is knowing and pursuing Jesus. Paul is, first of all, in uh, thinking of Old Testament practices of the law, the practices like festivals, sacrifices, priestly garments, incense, lamps, circumcision. Those things are not just matters of indifference, but they're damaging now that Christ has come. In their time, they pointed forward to Jesus, but now they distract us from Jesus. And yet it's remarkable how entrancing those things can be. Uh, You can go down the road to uh, a Catholic church and you'll find a priest in robes. Uh, You'll find candles, you'll find incense. You'll find people deliberately trying to emulate some practices from the Old Testament. And there are lots of Christians who do similar things. And they're doing it often for a good reason. That is, they hope that it will help them to draw closer to God. But actually, Paul says, we don't need those things. We don't need candles to stir up our hearts. We don't need incense to bring us closer to God or to improve our Christian walk. In fact, those things are not just not useful but they actually draw us away from the source of our Christian life, which is Jesus Christ. We need, what we need is more of Jesus. We need to pursue him. A candle won't get you to heaven, but Jesus can. And incense won't draw you nearer to God, but Jesus will. And yet I suspect that most of us are not really tempted to return to Old Testament practices and procedures. And yet the problem that Paul is talking about here is broader than that. The problem is anything that we put our confidence in which stops us from pursuing Christ. The problem is confidence in the flesh, Paul says, or confidence in ourselves, or confidence really in anything in this world which is not Jesus. Whatever it is that stops you from pursuing Christ is a loss. It's damaging. If your sense of self-worth stops you from pursuing Christ, you need to kill it off. If your contentment in what you own stops you from pursuing Christ, you need to get rid of it. If your life is driven by attaining another goal, beauty, health, prosperity, respect, money, power, success, whatever it might be, if your life is driven by pursuing another goal, you need to give that up and pursue Jesus instead. We need to run the race of the Christian life like an athlete running a race, 
But zeal and determination are pointless unless we're running in the right race and we're running in the right direction. Unless the race that we're running is to Jesus. So running the race of the Christian life, in running that race, we need to make sure we're running the right race in the right direction. But why don't any of those things that Paul had matter? Why, why is it that they don't matter? Why those things uh, that we need to throw aside as well, why don't they count? Uh, or maybe to ask the question another way, why is it that Christ is better? Why is it that Christ is so worth pursuing? Uh, it's not enough of an argument p- for Paul to say, all those things are better, you need to know Christ. Just do it, know Christ. That's not an argument. That's not a reason. Paul needs to explain why knowing Christ is better, and so he does that in the next part of the chapter. He gives two reasons. Uh, The first is in verse 9, he says, uh, that he wants, that he considers everything else rubbish, so that he might, verse 9, be found in him, that is in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own which comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Uh, Paul makes two contrasts. He contrasts his own righteousness with God's righteousness and he contrasts his own righteousness, which was from doing the law, with the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Uh, Paul had before a kind of righteousness, but it turns out on closer inspection that it was actually pretty shabby. Imagine that you're looking to employ someone uh, and you are going through the process and you get a character reference. You know, you often have to get a character reference or a reference from somebody uh, who's applying. And, uh, and the character reference goes something like this. Well, they're a pretty selfish person. Uh, they're always thinking of themselves. Uh, they don't think of others very much. And they have a habit of getting angry, not in that kind of really violent, aggressive way, but uh, in that I'm giving you the silent treatment kind of way. They just shut up shop and go off uh, on their own. They're a bit manipulative uh, and they often drink too much and and then say inappropriate things. But I wouldn't worry about any of that because uh, they go to church uh, and they read the Bible. What would you think if somebody gave you a character reference like that? You wouldn't think, I suspect, that they were a good person just because of going to church, would you? Doing a few good things. They're not a very nice person. And it's a bit the same when it comes to God, except we're not seeking a character reference just for a great employment opportunity. We're seeking a character reference to know whether or not we can live with God for eternity, whether or not we can enter the presence of the living God. Whether we can stand in the presence of a holy God without being totally and utterly destroyed. And no righteousness, no godliness, no holiness that we can manufacture is sufficient to stand the withering gaze of our holy creator. It's a bit like the back window of my car. The back window of my car could do with a wash. Uh, And when I look out the back window most of the time, I can see pretty clearly. 
But when the sun shines right on it, I can't see a thing. And I suddenly realise just how filthy it really is. And I think it's a bit like that with God. Is that we look at ourselves in our in kind of the dim light of our own lives and we think, I think I'm doing okay. And the full light of God's glory and God's presence comes on us. God's holiness comes on us. And all of a sudden, we see the reality of our lives. We are so deeply corrupted by sin at every level. The Bible says that our best righteousness is like filthy rags. There are evil desires and evil thoughts woven right into the very depths of our being. And no amount of good deeds can root those out. What we need is not our own righteousness, but God's righteousness. Only if somehow, can, only if somehow we can possess the perfections of God's own character can we stand before him with confidence. And so Paul says he pursues Christ in the hope that on the last day he might be found with that righteousness. That he might be found in him, that is in Jesus, not having his own righteousness, but sharing the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus is perfectly righteous because he is God. He has the perfections of God's character. But because he is a man like us, he can share the perfections of God's character with us as well. But righteousness uh, is not something, righteousness from God is not just something that Jesus gives us, like you give someone a cup of tea. Here's a cup of tea. Here's some righteousness. Go and have that. Righteousness is something, Paul says, that we have by being united with Jesus. It's by being found in him. Our only hope on the last day is to st- in standing in the presence of God is to be so closely united with Jesus, so tightly bound up with Jesus, that his righteousness becomes our righteousness. That when God looks at us, he doesn't see us in our filthy rags with all our spot and wrinkles and shame. No, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Our only hope is to be so closely united with Jesus that even already now the powerful uh, life of Jesus transforms our weak and sinful lives. Why do you need to pursue uh, Christ? Because outside of Christ you have nothing. Whatever righteousness you have is nothing. Whatever good you've done is not good enough. The only hope is to share the righteousness of Jesus, which comes by faith in him. So if there's anything, Paul says, that stands in the way of you possessing Christ, of you knowing Christ, then get rid of it. Cut it off, throw it away. It's better to lose any of that stuff than to miss out uh, on eternity with God. Why is pursuing Christ better? First, because in him is righteousness from God, which exceeds uh, any righteousness that we might have. But second, pursuing Christ is better because in him there is resurrection. Paul says in verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Why does Paul want to know Christ? Because he wants to share in Jesus' powerful resurrection from the dead. 
Here's another reason why none of Paul's previous attainments or achievements mattered, why they were rubbish, because none of them ended in resurrection. You can't, you can't raise someone from the dead by circumcising them. I don't know if you've tried to, but it doesn't work. You can't raise someone from the dead by lighting a candle. Oh, they died. Well, let's just light a candle and hope that that brings them back. You can't raise someone from the dead by smoking the place out with incense. You can't raise yourself from the dead by working really hard. There you are, dead in the grave, rotting to pieces. If I just try a bit harder, maybe I'll be able to get myself out of this grave. You can't raise yourself from the dead by walking through the doors of a church or by opening your Bible in the morning. No, there's only one way to be raised from the dead, by knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. And Paul says if that means knowing Christ so intimately that we also share in his sufferings, then so be it, anything, in order that I might somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead. Whatever it takes, just give me Jesus. What leads to resurrection is knowing Christ, and not just knowing about Christ, but knowing him, loving him, delighting in him, experiencing his work in your life. How well do you know Jesus? How well uh, do you know what he loves uh, or what he hates? How well do you know his kindness and his rebuke? Does his life shape your life? Is his death powerfully at work in you, killing off sin? Is his powerful resurrection at work in your life, giving you new hopes and new desires and new holiness? Can you say with Paul, I no longer live but Christ lives in me. Paul isn't just saying, oh, you need to know about Christ. Oh, yes, I know Christ. Uh, Yeah, I think think we met once at a party. No, he's saying that you know him so deeply, so intimately, so profoundly through the power of the Holy Spirit that his life is your life. His death is your death. You belong to him. You don't live. It's not even you anymore. It's the God of heaven and earth who became one of us who lives in you. It's a remarkable thing, isn't it? To see the life of Christ and the death of Christ at work in somebody. You need to pursue Christ because he is the resurrection and the life. We talked the other day, uh, the other week about big prayers. Well, here's another big prayer that you can pray. Lord, make me know Christ. Make me know him so deeply that I also share in his sufferings. It's a dangerous prayer to pray. 
and make me know him so deeply that I might also share in his powerful resurrection from the dead. In running the race of the Christian life, we need to make sure that we're in the right race, running in the right direction. We need to pursue Christ because in him is uh, righteousness and in him is resurrection. But how do we do that? How do we pursue Christ? In the second half of the chapter, Paul points out or puts some flesh on the ways that we do that. He says two things. First, he says that he pursues Christ single-mindedly. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He hasn't obtained it. He hasn't been made perfect yet, but Jesus has taken hold of him for that purpose. Jesus' purpose is to make him perfect. And so Paul says in verse 13, I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, here it is, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal, to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should think uh, in such a way. Paul presses on to take hold of the very thing that God has promised him in Jesus. He ignores everything behind him, forget about that, And he presses on to what is ahead. He pursues Jesus and resurrection and perfection with Jesus with all his might. Well, if you belong to Jesus, here's God's message. Jesus has taken hold of you to make you perfect. And nothing can stand in the way of that. That's Jesus' great purpose for you to make you perfect and blameless and holy in Christ. And your responsibility is to pursue that with all your might. Paul says in verse 16, let us live up to what we've already attained. There's the promise. We have it. We already have it in Christ, but let's pursue it. Let's live up to it. How does he do it? He does it as an athlete, single-mindedly, forgetting what's behind, striving to what's ahead. I remember when I was... Uh, running at school, they always said, don't look back because you lose your footing and you slow down. Don't look behind you, look at the finish line and run as hard as you can at that finish line. That's what Paul does in the Christian life. He fixes his eyes ahead. He looks at Jesus and he runs for that. Every day the past is forgotten. The past becomes less and less meaningful. Every day the significance of our past achievements fade as we look ahead to the better things that are to come. Some people live permanently in the past, reliving past glories. Some people live with the memory of uh, sporting prowess in their youth. The, The only thing that they'll ever talk to you about is the footy games that they played, uh, you know, when they were 18, 30 years ago. And the flag that we won. Other people, uh, it might be the popularity or the beauty that they once had. Some people live in the glory of academic achievement. Some people remember better days. Nothing grand, but just better days. And they long for those days again. But how foolish to live in the past when even the greatest moments of our past will fade into insignificance 
on that day when we're perfect and holy in Jesus Christ. Other people continually relive past failures. Not great achievements, but great mistakes. Errors of judgment. An affair. A divorce. An abortion. A bad business decision. A crime. A financial scandal. But how foolish to live in the past when even the worst moments of our past will be forgotten when the forgiveness of the cross is so deeply entrenched in our hearts on that day when we're perfect and holy in Christ. Paul forgets the past and throws all that off and presses on ahead. He looks to the finish line. He looks to Jesus Christ and he runs as hard as he can for that. In running the race of the Christian life, we need to make sure we're running in the right race in the right direction. We need to pursue Christ because in him is righteousness and resurrection. Uh, and we do that by forgetting what's behind and pursuing what's ahead. But second of all, and last of all, we do that by setting our minds on the Saviour who's returning for us. Verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Paul and his companions live in the light of their internal inheritance. They're citizens of heaven, not citizens of earth. And one day the all-powerful Christ will transform uh, his people to be like him. And because of that, Paul says he lives now, eagerly awaiting that day, eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, And in verse 17, he calls the Philippians to follow that example. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. But he also calls them, as well as calling them to follow his example, he says, don't follow the example of others. Verse 18, for as I often have told you before and now say again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. How foolish to live for your stomach when today it's full and tomorrow it's empty. How stupid to live for this world and for this body when the ultimate hope is to be raised with a glorious body. Even by the time scales of this life, a great meal today is quickly forgotten. Most of the time it leads to indigestion as well. And a bad night's sleep, is that just me? How much more quickly will those meals that we long for today, how much more quickly will they fade into insignificance on the time scales of eternity? Or how silly it is to spend hours in the gym sculpting the perfect body. Or to spend countless dollars on cosmetics achieving fading beauty. Or to spend so much mental energy designing the perfect diet to achieve the perfect figure. When the body that we'll gain in Christ will be so much more magnificent 
than even the most perfectly photoshopped person on the cover of a magazine. It's remarkable, isn't it? They're the, the photos that we post on Instagram and Facebook and whatever else are the photos of our present life, our great and glorious achievements. Wouldn't it be great if there was a spiritual Instagram and we could post on there the reality that we are in Christ? As people will see us on the last day, holy and blameless, without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. It'd be a photo worth posting, wouldn't it? The pursuit of such idols unchecked, Paul says, can be catastrophic. Some of the people in Paul's day had become so tied down in pursuing this world that they'd become enemies of the cross. What a tragedy. But in contrast, how precious is the pattern of lives of those people who, like Paul, live in the present in the light of the future? People who trust God so deeply and whose hope in Christ seems so strong that their lives are so out of kilter, so out of step with everything else around them. I said to someone else, uh, another Christian, the other day, I said, how much I enjoy their presence in the church. But simultaneously, how much I find their presence deeply challenging. I consider their life a rebuke to my own life because their life, their longing for eternity, the focus of their life shows my life up in all its flabby ill-discipline. But such people like Paul are actually God's gift to us. In a world where we're bombarded by advertising day in and day out, those people advertise eternity. And they remind us what kind of life is worth living. How do we run the race of the Christian life? We do it by eagerly awaiting the return of our precious Saviour who will raise us uh, to be like he is. Well, what's our only hope? Uh, Our only hope is to know Christ, to know him so intimately and so deeply that everything that belongs to him belongs to us. His righteousness is ours. His death is ours. His resurrection is ours. His perfection is ours. His glorious body is the template for our glorious body. Our only hope is to know him so intimately and so deeply that on the last day when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, we won't be meeting a stranger for the first time. We'll be meeting a long-lost friend. A long-lost friend who'll say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's happiness. Let me pray. Dear Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. He was with you in the beginning. 
and through whom all things were made, who though the world did not know him, you sent him into our world that we might know you and that we might be born again. Born again not of a husband's will or a father's decision, but born of God. And Lord, thank you that you have made known to us the glories of the gospel in Jesus Christ. You have made known to us sitting here the grace upon grace that there is in Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that each and every one of us would embrace him. And though we know him just a little, that every day would be a greater day of knowing Christ. That every day would be a day not just of knowing about Christ, but of knowing him and being known by him of knowing the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and knowing the power of his resurrection from the dead in our lives. Lord, thank you that Jesus Christ has taken hold of us for that great purpose, to make us like him and help us to run the race with perseverance. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at your right hand. Make us to know him, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen.